Welcome to That's What She Said, a podcast of sermons at Galileo Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. Galileo exists to seek and shelter spiritual refugees, who for us are people for whom the church has become boring, irrelevant, exclusive, or even painful, especially people who have been pushed out because of their gender or sexuality. If you yourself are a spiritual refugee, we're especially glad you're listening. So I'm reading the gospel reading from Luke tonight. Um, You might remember that we're in a worship series right now called Four Questions and a Funeral. Uh, We're on question three. So question one was, how are we supposed to be citizens here and now? Question two last week, what happens to us when we die? Question three for tonight, what happens at the end of the world? Luke 21, verses 5 through 28. When some were speaking about the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and gifts dedicated to God, Jesus said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will this be? And what will be the sign that this is about to take place? And he said, beware that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name and say, I am he, and the time is near. Do not go after them. When you hear of wars and insurrections, do not be terrified, for these things must take place first, but the end will not follow immediately. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places, famines and plagues. And there will be dreadful portents and great signs from heaven. But before all this occurs, they will arrest you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors because of my name. This will give you an opportunity to testify, so make up your minds not to prepare your defense in advance, for I will give you words and a wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be betrayed by parents and brothers, by relatives and friends. They will put some of you to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your souls. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains, And those inside the city must leave it, and those out in the country must not enter it. For these are days of vengeance as a fulfillment of all that is written. Woe to those who are pregnant, to those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress on the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be taken away as captive among all nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. 
There will be signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars, and on the earth distress among nations confused by the roaring of the seas and the waves. People will faint from fear and foreboding of what is coming upon the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then, then they will see the son of humanity coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, stand up, raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Oh, how I disenjoy proclamations of the gospel that require a history lesson before we get to the good stuff. Douglas Copeland, the Canadian who named my cohort Gen X, said that one of our generation's seven deadly sins is a willful ignorance of history. And that has pretty much been true of me and my education. So let it be a comfort to you that if it's work for you to listen to it, it was also work for me to learn it in the first place. So we are stuck together in the suck of the prologue. Here we go. The Roman Empire, when it had gained significant momentum in its world-conquering enterprise, had a way of coercing people and claiming territory that mostly left infrastructure in place. It was not in the empire's interest to slash and burn. They were more into tax and build. So as a conquered people, if there were important pieces of your cultural heritage that did not threaten the emperor's sovereignty, you could keep them. So long as the Roman bureaucrats stationed in your hometown, now part of the imperial hegemony, could testify to your docile cooperation. But if at any point the Roman hierarchy got a whiff of insurrection, if there were any talk of competition for power, any public protest of policy, well, the empire was relentless and would bring down the hammer of overwhelming military force to smash any sliver of resistance. It was always hard for the Jews whose homeland was quietly assimilated into the Roman Empire when Jesus was a little boy, around 6 CE. Their capital city, Jerusalem, the beating heart of worship from whence the prayers of the people traveled the most direct route to the ear of the one true God, swarmed with Gentile, that is, non-Jewish, occupiers, bureaucrats, and soldiers, lots of soldiers, the wealth of the city and surrounding countryside was slowly drained by oppressive taxation. The imperial allegiance of the deeply devout citizens of the non-existent state of Israel was tested daily as they continued to confess loyalty to the only true God, refusing to declare Caesar is Lord, threading a terribly narrow needle with their commitment to remain faithful while also remaining alive. And then came the great revolt 
of 66 CE, sometimes called the First Jewish War, because it would not be the last time that Jesus's religious kin decided they'd had enough needle threading. They were ready to kick the bastards out. The last straw, the one that broke the back of the local Pax Romana camel, came when the Roman governor in Judea stole a bunch of money directly from the temple treasury. The rage of the religious led to some early kicking of Roman ass, but soon enough, Emperor Vespasian sent his son Titus with enough army to eat the Jewish rebels for breakfast. And in 70 CE, just to drive the point home, Titus and his boys razed the Jerusalem temple to the ground, leaving nothing but rubble and smoke, dashed hopes, and demoralized survivors. Here's why I'm telling you this. Jesus said a lot of end of the world sounding things in his ministry, especially at the end of his ministry, when it became clear that his revolution of love and other cheek turning pacifism was not going to end sweetly. He began to ask his followers to look beyond the present moment toward a future when God's sovereignty would no longer be a secret seed germinating in soft-hearted soil, no longer a hidden treasure buried waiting to be dug up. Someday, he began to say, God's gonna get everything God wants and every pretender to the sovereignty of this world will be thrown from their throne. But before his followers could raise a cheer, he would show them his hand. Ba, 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 ba. But between now and then, he would say in a serious voice, between now and then, things are going to get worse, a whole hell of a lot worse than they are right now. So there they were in the temple that day, probably Tuesday or Wednesday before his arrest on Thursday and his execution on Friday. His audience kept growing and he kept teaching. He kept provoking the VRPs with his jabs at their needle-threading ways. And that day, maybe while Jesus was on a liquid management break, the chit-chat in the crowd turned to the beauty of the temple itself, how decked out it was with jewels and ornaments, gifts brought by worshipers who made their pilgrimage to pray, you could think perhaps of the odds and ends that make the Big Red Barn a weirdly beautiful space. The artistic offerings of many of you, the thrift store finds that you add to our collection of communion dishes, the pieces of ourselves that we leave here until they become part of the furnishings. I get the feeling that it irritated Jesus a little bit, maybe a lot, to hear them getting all sugary about the stuff the stones and the mortar, the shine of it all. Seriously, he said, you know this is all temporary, right? None of this is built to last. Not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. And their response, our third question, well, technically a pair of questions. One, 
When? And two, how will we know it's coming? By it, I'm pretty sure that they were thinking what we are usually thinking when we hear this kind of gospel reading that Jesus predicted the end of this world, the overthrow of every oppressive system and the establishment of God's ultimate sovereignty over all creation. And indeed, in the tradition of the prophets before him, he did have in mind that one day, the tiny seed of God's reign would explode from the soil to flower gloriously, the earth regenerating with justice rolling down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream, the wolf and the lamb lying down together, the day of peace that dimly shines, etc. But he asked the crowd that day to back up just a bit from that mouth-watering vision of the end, to cool their jets for just a moment while they considered what could happen in the meantime. When you hear the violence in the streets, he said, when the misery of that violence comes right home to you, hold on tight, for these things must take place first, but the end will not follow immediately. Before the end, he said, before God's happily ever after, it will seem like the world is ending a thousand times or more. Geopolitical violence, check, as nations and kingdoms send their armies against each other. Natural disasters, famine, pandemic, check, as the earth itself shudders in the cosmic consequences of human brokenness. Portents and signs, check, as basically any anomaly in sky or sea can be read as a forecast of suffering and it will soon enough come true. Before the end, he said, before God's happily ever after, the world will become hostile to people who say there's a better way. Hostile to people who live out a commitment to this boundary-breaking gospel, this way of love that trumps all other measures of religiosity, this truth that God's love is the engine powering the universe. The world will not be a safe place to say that love is love, or that all are welcome, or that justice is what love looks like in public. And they will come for you, he said, to get you to shut up about it. No worries, he said. I'll make sure you have plenty to say. Before the end, he said, before God's happily ever after, even this gorgeous temple will come down with a thunderous crash. This tension that we live in between the empire and the reign of God cannot last. It has to break. And when it breaks, all the boots of all the tramping warriors will march through these streets. The stones will fly. The city will fall. The violence will be unbearable, especially for the most vulnerable. Woe to those who are pregnant, whether they want to be or not. 
Woe to those who are responsible for nursing babies in those days. Woe to the young trans kids. Woe to their parents who just want to protect them. Woe to the immigrants who can't get asylum. And woe to the ones who look like criminals to the authorities because of the color of their skin. Woe to all who are vulnerable when this thing breaks bad, which it will, because it always does. Because that's the thing. The world is always ending. By the time Jesus came on the scene, the world had been ending for thousands of years of his ancestors' recorded history. It had ended when a Pharaoh arose who did not know Joseph and enslaved all of Jacob's descendants in Egypt. It had ended when the liberated slaves wandered the wilderness, dodging settlers who didn't want them anywhere near long enough that a whole generation of them died off. It had ended when their husbands and brothers and sons marched into one battle after another just to keep that little slice of land God had promised them. It had ended when King David's grandsons ignited a civil war that tore the tribes apart and saturated that promised land with the blood of their own kin. It had ended when the Assyrians crushed the northern kingdom. It had ended when the Babylonians crushed the southern kingdom and the temple Solomon built was destroyed. It had ended when the Persians and then the Greeks and finally Rome declared world domination. The world ended every time they put coins with Caesar's face on them into the hands of the tax collectors on Rome's payroll. How many more times since then has the world ended? The first Jewish war and the temple's destruction in 70 CE? Masada, the Crusades? The Middle Passage, the Trail of Tears, the French Revolution, the Mexican-American War, a civil war on this soil, the Great Depression, the trench warfare of the war to end all wars, the Holocaust, Hiroshima, Nagasaki, Emmett Till, Selma, Stonewall, Harvey Milk, AIDS, Trump, COVID, George Floyd, Dobbs, Ukraine, Abbott Patrick Paxton, again and again and again, ad nauseum, 1.5 degrees Celsius and climbing your father's cancer, your mother's dementia, your partner's betrayal, your child's suffering. The world is always ending, Jesus said. The world will always be ending. Hang on tight, for these things must take place first, but the end will not follow immediately. The world is always ending but this is not the end of the world. How he wanted them, how he wanted us to grasp that his was never a promise of a magical erasure of history to come, 
A wand waved over the lived human experience to eliminate all suffering for everybody immediately. How he wanted his followers to remain engaged with this world even while they waited indefinitely for its redemption. How he wanted, at the same time, for them not to invest their happiness in the fleeting successes of anything they could build with their own hands. And how he wanted, more than anything else, for them to just stay with him through the suck. Because he was going to stay with them, see? He was going to stay right through to the end of his own experience of this broken, breaking world, right through the violence and the darkening sun at midday and the unbearable tension exploding in vitriol he would bear in his body and his spirit in just a day or two's time. Their world would end again that day. And even that would not be the end of the world. History happens. The world is always ending. But none of the suffering we have seen or will see is predictive of God's own timing. Until we see the son of humanity coming in a cloud with power and great glory, whatever that means, we keep going, come what may. Keep going, keep the faith, keep your eye on the vulnerable, keep your head, keep your head up. The world is ending, but this is not the end until it is. Jesus said so. Thanks for listening to That's What She Said. This podcast is preached almost always by our lead evangelist, Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes. Galileo Church has five missional priorities. We do justice for LGBTQ plus people and those who love them. We do kindness to those in mental and emotional distress and celebrate neurodiversity. We do beauty for our God who is beautiful. We do real relationship, no bullshit, ever. And we do whatever it takes to share this good news with the world God still loves. To support the production of this podcast and the ongoing missional priorities of this church, go to GalileoChurch.org and click on Conspire With Us. You'll have options to use your Venmo or PayPal or use your credit card or bank account. Any amount helps. And if you're kind enough to share your contact information with us, we'll continually send you thanks. Peace.